one covers local, national, and world news like Rich Rothman. And no one covers local, national, and world shipping like DHL. DHL, customer service is back in shipping. From Atlantic Radio Network. Fresh talk with a South Florida flavor. This is the Rich Rothman Show on 1360 WKAT. Okay, welcome back. It's uh, 5.06. It's six minutes after the hour. That means all of you are out of the office. It's a Friday in South Florida. Sitting in the studio with us today is Nicole Sandler. Hello. The wonderful Nicole oh, Sandler. Thank you. Recently mm-hmm. back from, uh, you were on a little New vacation. York. New yes. York. You got I, a touch, a taste of New York. Oh, yeah. A couple of Broadway shows, a couple of business Did you meetings. see Jersey Boys? Did you we ever? did not. We saw Young Frankenstein. <sighs> How was that? Frankenstein. Frankenstein. Wonderful, very funny. And Wicked. Oh, my God. So it was sort of a Halloween thing. I, I need a taste in New York. Oh, I haven't been there so in a while. Good. And the weather was perfect. It was great. We saw, went to the Museum of Natural History. A little bit of everything. A little dinosaur. A little dinosaur, a monster, a witch, you know, all hey. that. And that was just getting out of Tribeca. That's right. We stayed <laughs> in the village, actually. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> all right. Well, listen, welcome to the show. We really happen to have Nicole here. And we are very honored to have Senator Mike Ravel and his partner, uh, Joe Luria. I believe they're on the phone right now. Gentlemen? That's right. I'm here. Uh, no, the writing partner. And the writing partner. Writing partner. Writing he partner. said his partner. And they I, could take that another way. I, well, you know, in this not day that and age, you probably wrong with could. That. And that's, that's right. dangerous. <laughs> no. Not that there's anything wrong with that. <laughs> not this. Hello, Senator Gravel. How are you? Very good. And hello to you, too, and to Nicole. Hello. So, uh, you know, I, I have to tell you, first of all, uh, Senator, um, having been a product, I went to college in the 60s to the early 70s. And, and, and one of the things I do remember very, very clearly being paranoid about was my draft status. <laughs> I, so here's the man I want to say thank mm-hmm. you. The draft status, I, I went to college in 64, so I guess I was 2S right away. And I know you're familiar with all this stuff. Oh, yes. <laughs> and, and so I know for a number of years, particularly as the Vietnam War continued, and we all knew that was a lie, uh, the Gulf of Tonkin, God, we didn't believe in that one. But uh, I used to open up my mailbox and my first my dormitory and then my where I lived in my house. My hand would literally shake, waiting to see if I got a General Hershey letter, you know, the Selective Service System. Yeah. And then what was the year that the first lottery, uh, the first lottery? You're came looking out? at me. I'm too young for that. I don't know. Well, you know, but you know everything. <laughs> no, Senator. When was the first year? What was it? About 1967 or 70? When was the first lottery? Oh no! Oh no! It predates that. You know, the, huh? the, it came out in uh, forty-seven. Oh yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But then it came the back Vietnam again. War. You got to ask Joe that question. Hey Joe, when? When? Hey Joe, how are you? I'm fine. How are you doing? I'm terrific. So the first lottery, the one that, that you know Senator Gravel was going after, was that from the sixties, the late sixties? Well, he he uh, his filibuster came later in June of seventy-one when the law right. was expiring. Right. As far as the first. Uh, I remember just discussing that recently because my brother, I recall very intently, we were watching on TV, see what number he was getting. He's a few years old than I am. I, I remember I that. I couldn't tell you. I could not tell you exactly. I'm sorry when that was. I do believe it may have been as late as 1970. Yes, but yeah. I, I just can't tell you offhand. That's not in the book. That's one detail we didn't have in there. There's a lot in there, but that's not in there. Because I do remember that night, and I remember them pulling those numbers, and I remember the fact that I was number 42, and mm-hmm. I, I immediately fell to the floor and writhed in pain. And then from that point forward, it was a question of jumping faster than General Hershey could get to me and trying to figure out what I could do to you know, save my life because I sure as heck didn't believe in the Vietnam War. Well, listen, I want you to know, guys, I read A Political Odyssey, The Rise of American Militarism, and One Man's Fight to Stop It. Senator Gravel, you're my hero. 
Oh, thank you very much. I'm glad you read it because it's our only hope to have a bestseller. <laughs> well, we're going to make sure that we sell a lot of copies for you, and I'm going to give this copy to Nicole to read because right. she just came in right. from New York and she didn't get a chance to read it. Let me ask you a question on this. What, what promoted you, what prompted you to get out and, and write this book? Well, it really was uh, Joe Lauria. He, I decided to run for president uh, because a friend of mine suggested that I would have to do that to make the public uh, aware of the National Initiative, which is a process to empower the people so that they can take control of the government. And so Joe immediately asked if he could follow me around. Well, he followed me around and uh, and then started writing about this and then asked if it would be okay to do a book together. And I said, hell yes. And uh, and so he and it's his style. Now, I've written a book called Citizen Power, and my style of writing is not nearly as good as Joe's. Joe's a better writer than I. Of course, he's been writing professionally all this time. And so uh, Joe is the stylist, has written this stuff, and what he's done, he's, he's woven together uh, the foreign policy since the Second World War uh, and picked up my adult public life as I came into the Senate and then wove that together right up into the present day. And he's done that very artistically, and so we sort of live together through this process for over two years, uh, and so Joe can pick up the foreign policy aspect of this, and uh, and 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 what he did is he traced some, he he found things about my life that I didn't know about. <laughs> it was interesting. Well, you so know what? I'll just, yeah, Joe. What's very good about this book is that first of all, Nicole, it's a very easy book to read, mm-hmm. but it is very elucidating in, in the sense that you you do go back in history. And you provide a lot of relevance, so I can understand what goes through your mind, uh, Senator Gravel. It, it, first of all, there's one, one quote in here that it, it is such a, an interesting uh, quote. It's on, pa- it's on page 45, and it talks about James Madison. And it says, of all the enemies of true liberty, war is perhaps the most to be dreaded. No nation can preserve its freedom in the midst of continued warfare. War is, in fact, the, the uh, true nurse of executive aggrandizement. In war, a physical force is to be created and it is the executive will which is to direct it. And, I, and that's a James Madison from the Constitution. And it seems like, Doc, uh, uh, Senator Gravel, you're very well steeped in the Founding Fathers and the intent of the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. And he adds to that, uh, and I don't know if that quote was truncated, but he adds to that that it's a device that permits the control of the many by the few. And boy, if that doesn't describe what's going on in our society today, nothing else does. And that's Madison. You're quite right. That is James Madison writ large. Isn't it interesting that that the in my mind the two key generals in our history that really had a better handle on the what we're doing wrong was of course George Washington in his farewell address who warned us about foreign entanglements which, of course, were up to our eyeballs in them around the world, and Dwight Eisenhower, who warned us that the demise of our democracy would take place as a result of the union between the military and our corporate interest. And, of course, that is not a warning anymore. That's come yeah, to pass. Yeah, that's just a reality. And he sat, you know, in the, in the preliminary meetings he had with JFK, he said, beware of the military-industrial complex. Because they're going right. to get you. 
and not they even may have gotten not it, a president mm-hmm. since has even acknowledged the problem. Does that not say something? Well, and and what I like about your book, uh, gentlemen, is that you really give a great historical perspective to understand. You know, the 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 military industrial complex isn't very recent. I mean, you took it back, and and by the way, the 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 minority of wealth controlling the majority of the populace goes back to the Shays Rebellion. I mean, the first example you give in your book is Shays Rebellion just after the Revolutionary War. That's right. I'd like to pick up here. Uh, first of all, it was December. December 1st, 69 was the first lottery. I looked it up, if you believe Wikipedia. Mm-hmm. All right, I remember that. And second of all, uh, you, Mike's uh, right. There's two really stories going on here, and it's, it's a history of the false threats. This should be introduced into the discussion. Good. The false threats that have been sold to our people by the government through media, with media compliance, to justify the overmilitarization of our economy. And that especially came true in the phony Cold War and the false war on terror, which we linked together, and some of the actors are the same in both cases. It's also about Mike's fight as a senator against American militarism. In that period that we discussed of national self-examination in the 70s, when the militarists became on the defensive because they lost in Vietnam. So there were seven years to look into what the U.S. had done with the wealth and power that it accrued during the Second World War. And we saw with the Church Committee and, and the House Assassination Committee, the CIA had gone around the world disturbing democracies, overthrowing democracies. It was the reverse of 1776. Instead of a democracy overthrowing a monarchy, we were putting monarchs back on the throne and destroying democracy like in Iran. So Ronald Reagan, unfortunately, in 1980, came back and put an end to that seven years when we began to look. What could we do with this power? Could we use it in a more humane and progressive way and tone down the threats? Because Russia was never a threat. Truman said it in his memoir that it was all phony. And the first three national intelligence estimates ever all said the Soviet Union was not a threat. This was all trumped up to, to, to make, prevent us from going into a new depression with arms uh, industry. That's the only way they got us out of the First Depression, and it's the way we prevented ourselves from getting back into another one, they thought. And I'm afraid that if we're going into a new one now, we might see more war again. Well, you also, you take it full circle, though, and you look at the, uh, you know, it's like the boy who cried wolf and the way they lied us into the war in Iraq, and now they're they're giving us more doom and gloom, and and you can't believe them. I mean, now they're telling us if we don't do this bailout, then we're in for a great disaster. But it, it's the same people who told us that we were that that Iraq was an imminent threat to us. And so you go, well, you know, I can't believe anything you said. Well, except that in this case, it's a little bit more pervasive than just George Bush telling us this. We're, we're hearing from but, mega economists around yes. the world saying we have a problem. Well, here. We, we know we have it. a problem. So we have but, a serious problem. Right. But yeah, I mean, there is a credibility problem here. Big credibility problem. Could I interrupt and give you a quote? Yeah. Make you, <laughs> we wish you would. <laughs> make you both barf. This, this is on November 12th, uh, 1969, as President Bill, uh, Bill Clinton signed into law, uh, in, uh, present with him was the Federal Reserve Chairman, Alan Greenspan, and the Chairman of the Committee, Senator of the Banking Committee, Phil Graham. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Who was not there was, of course, the former Secretary Rubin, who is now with Citibank, making $40 million a year. And they were celebrating the repeal of the Glass-Steagall Act of 1933. And these are the words of Bill Clinton. Financial services firms will be authorized to conduct a wide range of financial activities, allowing them freedom to innovate in the new economy. <laughs> Does that tell you what happened? Absolutely. Yeah, Clinton has a lot to answer for, too. Mm-hmm. 
and of course, what, what now? What you have is you have McCain, who has has his main advisor Graham, oh, Graham. Right. and you have as Obama his main advisor is Rubin. Now you tell me that you're going to see some change take place after in January. So, all right. Now, having said that, how did it feel standing on the stage with them a few times when you were doing uh, the run for the presidency? Well, do you recall what I said? They all scare me. I, I know exactly what you said. And you said that to, what, to Brian Williams? Yeah, they all scare yeah. me. They do. They well, do. We, here, our problem, our problem is to be able to put aside American imperialism. Because, you see, we, we are imperialist, and that's what sustains the military-industrial complex. And so we now have a windfall. With 9-11, we were able to gin up the terrorism, which is nothing more than criminal activity. We were able to gin up a terrorist war. It's a war. Now, this will go on forever. It's a never-ending war, right. And so now you've got the rationale to continue to spend all of this money uh, on a terror, which is nothing but a police activity. Mm -hmm. And now we've seen where we're now ginning up an arms race against Russia and possibly China. And we spend more in defense than all the rest of the world put together. Russia spends less than 10% of our total budget and China less than 10% of our total budget. What is the threat? These people are not a threat to us, and yet we continue to pour out this wealth and treasure to no avail. You know, just ask yourself, what are we doing in Afghanistan? What are we doing in What are we doing in Afghanistan or Pakistan? Right now, what are we doing in Afghanistan? What what are we what's the mission? What are we going to accomplish? Oh, we're going after Osama bin Laden. Well, we've been doing that for 7 years and we haven't found them. Well, I didn't say we're doing it well. <laughs> I just said <laughs> oh, you right, asked me what well. we're doing. Here, I thought I'd get we, two we points killed, for that. Well, they're going after the boogeyman. So we killed over 4,000 American soldiers and, uh, and probably a million Iraqis to go after Saddam Hussein, one man. Now that's not a very good ratio. Uh, of of putting somebody in jail or getting him killed, what do we go? What do we? Th that's the question we as Americans have to ask. What do we hope to accomplish in Afghanistan? But I don't think we get the answers, and I think we don't get the answers because it gets clouded by the underlying reason why we're there. And you point this out very well uh, on when you talk about Butler. Butler wrote in War is a Racket that the Dupont's average profit is six million a year back in 1910 to 1914 and soared to 58 million. And guess what? Somebody realized war is terrific. Yeah, well, it's terrific for the KBRs and the Halliburtons, it's terrific but not, not for the you General and me. Motors. It's terrific for well, all that's the That's not terrific steel. for General Motors. Hey, listen, Senator Gravel, who made the money in Vietnam War? Don't you think U.S. Steel made a lot of money? Oh, of course they did. Of course they did. They all did. They're all war profiteers. Of course, that's the reason why General Electric didn't want me in the debate. Mm -hmm. And they got right. me out. They got me out in conspiracy with the leadership of the Democratic Party. And, but that's what the book is all about. It's, it's the history of what transpired, ably written and woven together by Joe and, uh, and my story. But what's really neat about the book, Senator and, and Joe, is that you bring together names and places. Of course, you do a retrospective in history. But the history can go back to the 80s. And you know what? The, all these guys are recycled. Gentlemen, I mean, first of all, you make a great comment. 
You know, Joe, you say the Cold War is over. Could the time have come to break up the Pentagon Industrial Alliance? Question mark. The answer is the rationale for its existence was gone. And then lo and behold, in 1998, several PNAC members wrote an open letter to Clinton calling him, you know, uh, to launch a preemptive military attack against Iraq to stop using weapons of mass destruction. And who signed that? Pearl Abrams, Richard Armitage, John Bolton, Douglas Feith, Frank Carlucci, Zalme Kalizadad, Billy Crystal, Michael Ledden, Bernie Lewis, Peter Rodman. Look at this one. Rumsfeld, Weinberger, Wolfowitz, Wumser, and others. Now, my God, did those guys sound familiar to you or what? They took over the government. Mm-hmm. And that's the reason why there's suspicion about, because they, they've admitted in other documentation, well, we need something like Pearl Harbor. <laughs> no, that's why people are suspicious about 9-11. Well, for good reason. Well, I can understand that to a degree, but I can't understand that to a degree, because I, I would find it incredibly hard to believe that the U.S. Do would do too. that to I the do U.S. But, I but just... when they say make a statement like, we need another Pearl Harbor, then you go, uh, okay, well, you get what you wish for, and... and well. That- and that's the same thing as people saying, well, you know, FDR really did know that those planes were coming. Right. And he let them attack. I just can't, you know, I, I can't buy into that. Well, but, neither can I. But the, but, but the people, when, when you don't get all the facts, people become suspicious mm-hmm. of conspiracies. Uh-huh. That's right. Uh-huh. Conspiracies rise because the people are uninformed. And the people are uninformed in our democracy because the government takes 90% of what the people should know and maintains it in secrecy. Well, and because they also tell us lies. I mean, you look at the, I'm sorry, but look at the, the, the McCain campaign, and it's filled with lies. And um, Senator Gravel, I just have to ask you, because you do come from Alaska, your <laughs> thoughts on Sarah Palin? Sarah, Sarah is, uh, when it comes to religion, is a bit of a nutcase. <laughs> yeah. When it comes to her knowledge of, you know, she made the statement about going to war with Russia. What, do we, what would we go to war with Russia for? Well, We're even last threat. night with Katie Couric, she said we, Putin rears his head. What the hell is she talking about? You can't she say hell. Know. Oh, I'm she's sorry. very uninformed. Very uninformed. And, but here, keep in mind, she's victim, like many, many Americans, to the military culture that we've been imbued with. Mm-hmm. This is the product that Eisenhower was warning about, and more so in Alaska, because we've got a lot of military bases, and Ted Stevens has been pouring money into Alaska, so we all think that, my God, we got to, you know, there, there's a threat. And there is no threat. There's no threat from Russia. Russia has never had it so good. In 300 years, those poor people in Russia have suffered and suffered, and now they're on the verge of prosperity because they're selling their oil and gas, and all they want to do is enjoy this prosperity. Mm-hmm. And what do we do? We keep trying to incite them into an arms race and try to destabilize them. Most Americans don't realize that on the southern part of the Eurasian continent, we have declared that as our area of vital national interest. It's like moving the Monroe Doctrine from the, from the Western Hemisphere to the southern Eurasian hemisphere. That's what we've done in law in 1999 by the Congress of the United States. Yeah, but didn't we agree back in 1960s and in the Cuban Missile Crisis that in exchange for removing the missiles from Cuba, we would not put missiles in Europe that would be threatening Eastern Europe and specifically Russia? And uh, now we're doing that in Did uh, we violate that? I, I think we violated that. Well, of course, we. but we here... When, when, uh, with respect to, uh, Poland, here, 
when the implosion of the Soviet Union occurred in 89, 88, 89, uh, Gorbachev and Reagan had an understanding, a verbal understanding, and it was very clear that we would not expand uh, NATO into the Eastern Bloc. Well, no sooner did Bush won and Clinton come into power, they expanded it to the Eastern Bloc. In point of fact, NATO should have been dissolved when the Warsaw Pact was dissolved, but not so. It, NATO became the agent of American imperialism. Most people don't realize that the head of NATO is an American military officer. And so we now can manipulate the, uh, the, uh, what the profiteers, the corporations, the military-industrial complex of Europe. We command that along with our own through NATO. And so that's the reason for the expansion of NATO into the southern tier of Georgia, into Poland. Now, let me give you an example. We're going to build these ten uh, holes in Poland. Now, we have ten holes like that in Alaska. They've cost over $100 billion. Now, the Bulletin of Atomic Scientists, a very fine technical magazine, tell us in, the, in two articles that talk about the technology. They say that the technology does not work for a threat that does not exist. Now, this is what we're going to do in Poland. It's going to cost probably twice what we spent in Alaska, which is $200 billion of your tax money for a threat that doesn't exist, for a technology that don't work. But why are we going to do that? Because contractors are going to make a lot of profit. Uh, in that process, and we're going to bleed. We're going to continue to bleed. When people talk about the bailout of $700 billion, do you realize that's essentially one year, because we spend more than that. It's closer to a trillion dollars a year on our defense posture. Do you realize how wantonly profligate we've been with our treasure and the reason why we don't have an educational system that works? a health care system that really satisfies our needs, and an infrastructure system uh, that, that's in trouble. Just you, uh, Here, Carol, you were just driving around New York. Mm -hmm. Just look at the roads oh, in New York. Yeah. When I was well, in public, Miami. Well, you don't have to go very far yeah, from here. Yeah, go very far. Just you're go right outside here. the studio. We're supposed to be the most powerful nation on Earth, and our roads suck. Mm -hmm. They're terrible. Bridges fall down. Our, our subway system is terrible. It's all terrible. And we're supposed to be the most powerful people on Earth, and we're wasting all this money when we can fly a drone airplane manned by somebody sitting in the desert in Nevada to bomb somebody in the desert of Iraq or Afghanistan. I, let me tell you, I saw a building in Nevada. That's where the person steers the drone in Iraq and in Afghanistan. Now, we can do that, but we can't move people around in this country safely and efficiently. Something is wrong with our leadership. Well, basically wrong. Don't you get the feeling there is no leadership? The problem, and I think that's part of the problem in Congress and in the executive right now. Who's in charge of this place? Because I can't well, figure it out right now. Uh, it's, it's, it's a sick, but it's been going on for the last 50 years. Well, in fact, it's been going on for the get-go. You know, the, we, we, our founding fathers in, uh, in 1787 in the Constitution cut a deal with the devil for slavery because all of our founding fathers felt that the American people should be able to make laws.
but they had to not let that happen in the Constitution because they wanted slavery in the Constitution. And so we lost out from the get-go. Um, all right, we're gonna we're gonna be coming up on a break. Can you stay with us for a while till we get to the other side of the break? I'll be happy to. Because I want I want I have a, a lot more questions to ask you about the book, and and I really want to talk to you about this bailout because I really would like to get your opinion of, of where you think what, where we should go with this bailout because there's a lot of doom and gloom. There are a lot of people who say let the free market handle it. There are a lot of people who are saying I don't want to sign on. There's a lot of reticence in Congress because they're getting 100 to 1 letters right now, emails, phone calls, saying, we don't want you to do this. So there's a lot of reticence to do something. But I think we have to do something because there is something wrong with the system. You're right. Let's come back to this one. So, uh, Wanda, how much time do I have? I got one minute left. All right, listen, we're going to take a break. We're going to come back with Senator Mike Revelle. We're going to be talking about... Uh, his book, A Political Odyssey. There are so many things I want to ask you about, particularly some of your familial influences. You talk about your father. You talk about immigration. You talk about what makes America strong. And, I, and I'd like to find out what really influenced Senator Mike Gravel. So everybody stay there. Senator Gravel, don't go anywhere. Get a drink of water. We're going to come right back okay. with Nicole Sandler, Rich Rop, and Wanda Miles on 1360 WKAT. Don't go anywhere. then you need to attend Florida International University's Women on the Move, Advancing Authentic Leader Seminar November 3rd through November 6th at the Hyatt Regency Bonaventure in Weston. FIU's Women on the Move Advancing Authentic Leaders Seminar is designed for high-potential women leaders in senior management and executive positions with substantial responsibilities within their organizations. This seminar series will help you become a more effective decision maker, communicate better, and become a more dynamic leader. Develop your personal strengths and go beyond your limitations by attending FIU's Women on the Move Advancing Authentic Leaders Seminar, November 3rd through November 6, 2008. Call 305-FIU-LEAD or email lead at fiu.edu for more information. The Port of Miami is the second largest economic engine in our community, providing an annual economic base of over $16 billion and over 100,000 jobs. These are high-paying in-demand jobs, very much coveted by other cities and ports throughout the Americas. We're fortunate to have this business, and of that $16 billion, international trade and cargo at the port accounts for over $13 billion per year, a significant fact, as well as a significant economic impact for all of us. The Port of Miami, working to enhance and contribute to the economic success of our country, further reinforcing Miami and South Florida as the gateway to the Americas. A new terminal that is larger than some mid-sized U.S. airport. The new Miami International Airport. A new 350-space ground-level short-term parking lot. The new Miami International Airport. The only U.S. airport with sleep pods. The new Miami International Airport. The international gateway to the Americas with more flights to South America than all U.S. airports combined. The new Miami International Airport. And coming soon, 61 new retail and food shops to add to your airport savoir-faire. Come experience the new Miami International Airport and watch us move towards the future. The new Miami International Airport. You know where I'm spending my next romantic evening out with my wife? At Biltmore Carl Gables Miami, a golf and spa resort. Maybe we'll start the evening with a five-star dinner at the newly opened Fontana Ristorante, enjoying their authentic Italian cuisine prepared by renowned chef Gaetano Accione. Or perhaps we'll dine at the acclaimed Palm d'Or restaurant, 
Zaga called Palm Dior one of the best restaurants in the country. South Florida's best restaurants are at the Biltmore Carl Gables, Miami. On Thursday after dinner, we could really enjoy Biltmore Unplugged. Live jazz music poolside at the Cascade Bar and Grill. Fine food and live jazz is awaiting your next romantic evening at Biltmore Carl Gables, Miami, a golf and spa resort. Visit www.biltmorehotel.com for more information or call them at 1-800-747-1926 for reservations. The perfect night out is at Biltmore Carl Gables, Miami, a golf and spa resort. No one covers local, national, and world news like Rich Rothman. And no one covers local, national, and world shipping like DHL. DHL. Customer service is back in shipping. Welcome back. From Atlantic Radio Network. Fresh talk with a South Florida flavor. This is the Rich Rothman Show on 1360 WKAT. Okay, welcome back. It's uh, uh, 535. Oh, my God. It's getting on there. And we're with Nicole Sandler in the studio right now. Thanks, Wanda. And we're on the phone with Senator Mike Revell. Mike, are you there? Yes, I am. Thank you, Senator. It's great. I'm, I'm here still, too, again. All right. Oh, we good. got Joe That's back. Good. Did you yeah. say Did you say hello to Condoleezza Rice? I, well, she walked right by me, but she was engaged in a conversation with someone. Uh, I did not say hello, no. So you're at, you're at the U.N. now. It's a madhouse there because I, we I was just in New York, and the city right. was at a standstill because of all the motorcades and all the world well, That's leaders. right. It happens every year, but... Uh, yeah. Now New York has imposed itself on the U.N., but this financial crisis, that's, that's the right. opposite of what normally happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, l- let me ask Senator Gravel a question. You talk about your family a bit. How influential are they? Because I, I, I tend to think when you talk about, A, immigration and your dad and how your dad was a very go-getter type of person who could never, would always find a reason to make things work and make it work. Is that a, is that a strong influence on you? Yes. My my dad really gave gave me a sense of, it gave me a sense of uh, of a work ethic. He was very proud. He was not very educated, but he was a hard worker. And uh, and so, as uh, French Canadians, you know, have large families, and so we were expected to go to work when we were 12 years old. And so, we started work at that age. And so, he gave me a sense of working hard, and it made me a workaholic. And so I'm very proud of that, and I'm very proud that he gave me that legacy. It was my mother who gave me a sense of uh, of affairs, public affairs. And she was more attuned to that. And but, Joe's work, as he as he moved around, he you know uh, we went to Canada. Uh, well, he went to really all of the places where I lived, sometimes with me and without me. And so he made discoveries of a lot of things that I had not focused on uh, that had influence on my life. And so maybe Joe could add to that. Well, that's right. I, Mike uh, maybe wasn't looking too uh, introspectively about what had formed him. In fact, he, I asked him repeatedly, what, why essentially are you the way you are? And he said he couldn't answer that. Mike's a man of action. Uh, he's reflective on world affairs, but I don't think he thought as much about his own life as I forced him to by my interviewing, and then I went out and talked to his sister, who really filled in a lot, and I went to Alaska and met a lot of people that he worked with and knew him well there, and that really helped us to um, shape together his life. And then, as Mike has been pointing out, uh, this was all really slight background. It's not really an autobiography or a biography, because it's not that much about his personal life, just enough to show what kind of a man would stand up to Nixon and would stand up to the Congress and be who he was, and I think that's an important 
part of the story, and we need that again in the Congress. I don't know if Mike mentioned uh, what happened when Dick Durbin announced that he couldn't announce, he couldn't say to the people what he had learned in camera in the Senate committee, to uh, Senate Intelligence Committee, that the intelligence about the Iraq War was all a lie. And Mike proved in his case with the Supreme Court and the Pentagon Papers that was Nixon Bernstein Court that, in fact, you're on the floor of the Senate, you can say anything you want. You can release any classified information you want. It's an important part of the book that I'm sure you've picked up on. So this is the kind of man Mike is. So his father was was a big influence because he went ahead and something goes wrong, he just brushes it off and went right ahead again. I, I, uh, I think Mike showed that kind of courage in the Senate. We just, it's lacking today, isn't it? Well, you know, it, what it seemed to me, I, I think that's very, very important to understand the courage of, uh, you know, of uh, Mike Gravel. What, what makes Senator Gravel so strong? And it's, number one, self-reliance, the ability to believe in oneself. And if you have that, if you don't have that trait, I don't think you could find the courage to do what, what you did when you released the papers, when you, you, know, you had the secret meetings. I mean, it's, my God, Senator Gravel, you have a background that's almost from the you know, espionage and spying in Europe. You come over to the United States, you come back to the United States, and, and then you dig down into your soul, find the courage to go public with something that's uh, you know, a virus and a corruption in our system. Well, I, I've always wondered, uh, and I never really attributed, because people use the word courage pretty loosely, I never really looked at it that way. Uh, I just feel that, you know, I am what I am. My metabolism, uh, my makeup is the way it is. Uh, now, a maverick, and this is what's interesting about a maverick, a maverick is born with courage uh, because uh, that's just the way a maverick is. What's fortunate about a maverick having courage is that it's that virtue that, Im that permits a person to implement all the other virtues because if you don't have the virtue of courage, you don't implement the other virtues. Now, that doesn't mean you implement all of them, and uh, you've got to keep in mind that, uh, you know, I was a politician, and I had clay feet like anybody else, but there were certain issues that I felt deeply about, and, uh, and I was prepared to put it on the line for those issues that I felt deeply about. Did you call it courage? I just felt that th this is something that just had to be done, period, end of story. Well, not only did you have the courage, you wound up in the Supreme Court. Well, I could have gone to jail, that, but I was frightened. Make, uh, yeah, you were. Not only were you frightened. I mean, when you I had to do this in such a secret way. I, I read the part. I've read the whole book, and to, uh, you had this. In, you had this incident with Griffin. Was it Griffin? Yes. With Griffith. Yes. <laughs> right. Yeah. And you kind of you spilled the beans a little bit. You almost blew it for yourself when you were trying to get on the floor in, in the Congress and and read all those papers. You know, for your for your um, filibuster. Oh yeah, no. that's a great story, by the way. Can we, talk, no, Joe? Can, can we talk that. about that for a second? Yeah, all I could think of is when I made that, which was a mistake, but it was, it was I was motivated to be kind to the staff of the Senate, <laughs> and uh, and then when he refused my unanimous consent request to stop a quorum, uh, to end a quorum call. I knew I had made a tactical mistake, and all I could think of as I was swearing at him was good. Good men finish last, and, and and I was swearing at him. I mean, it was so. Uh, yeah, I can't use the word that you use in the book, but it's mother something. I mean, it's oh, it's yeah, it's out right. there. To his face, and then some. if I could. What about his arguments with Scoop Jackson and uh, when he brought him to see Nixon? I don't know if you like that scene. Oh well, yeah, I like that scene. I also like the scene with Jimmy Carter. I mean, right. when, when Carter goes ahead and declares that fifty percent or about fifty percent of the state of Alaska is off limits for development. 
and and you're not even consulted and talked to about. I mean, you were incensed with that, I gather. Oh, and and because it was unfair, because I had uh, I had endorsed Carter early on and supported him, and the only quid pro quo I had when he asked for support, I said, look at if you do anything in Alaska. You don't have to agree with my views, but at least tell me ahead of time. It would be fair. Two cents in. You don't have to agree with me. Never, never was I consulted or given any courtesies at all on fundamental policy affecting Alaska. Hey, Senator Gravel, is there anybody in government today, any young, you know, uh, politicians? I, although I don't like that word, coming up that you see the same traits that maybe you had back then that you have hope for in in terms no, of leadership. Not, not, no, uh, no, no. I wish I wish they not were. A one, huh? We're doomed. I don't, wow, I don't we're doomed. That much up to the hill now, so I'm not mm-hmm. knowledgeable of anybody there. The closest would be uh, Feingold, but mm-hmm. but here again, Feingold could have filibustered uh, Fiza? the uh, Fiza. Uh, the the resolution. Uh, Feingold and Boxer just mm-hmm. voted. Were the only two people in a foreign relations committee that voted against the nuclear deal no. with India, which is horrible. Uh-huh. I don't it's understand that. Situation. Does anyone understand why we're doing that? Oh, it's, it's money. It's That's right. What it is, <laughs> it's setting a double standard. Exactly. Because what, what we're doing is <clears throat> here, we're trying to punish Iran for acquiring nuclear technology, which they're legally entitled to do, and they're parties to the non-proliferation agreement. And we are now making an agreement with India, who are not uh, signatures to the non-proliferation agreement. And the impact of what we're doing with India is to increase their weapons capability. Now, isn't that an interesting thing? And then when you go forward beyond that, you find out with the GNAP program, which is the Global Nuclear uh, Enterprise Program, which is to expand nuclear the sale of plutonium and uranium to all of these countries that we encourage to go nuclear. And when you find out that all these countries that produce nuclear power also have the power to have weaponry. Mm -hmm. And that's what the United States is leading the world on. I mean, it doesn't get any sicker than that. Well, yeah, in terms of a double standard. Now, you you were on the committee that capped nuclear power plants back in the 70s. Oh, I was not on the committee. I was I was a junior member. The committee in question was run by Scoop Jackson and John Pastore, and I was able to take those fellows on and with real trepidation because they were the giants of the Senate, and uh, and with Schlesinger, who was the head of the atomic uh, part of the government, and uh, I picketed the White House. I brought. I made a, a world effort to bring world opinion against the nuclear testing in the North Pacific. In fact, that's how Greenpeace came about. They bought a boat in Vancouver and sailed to Amchitka Island, and they incorporated, and that's in the name of the corporation was Greenpeace. And, and of course, we failed on that detonation, but, uh, but then after I got my hands, some whistleblower gave it to me. I don't remember who, and I don't care to. But they gave me a memo that said that we were testing a, a, a device, a warhead, for the safeguard missile system, and the warhead was obsolete. But the contractor had the contract, and they were continuing to detonate these nuclear devices underground, which were creating an unbelievable amount of pollution in, in areas that were the size of a football field, in the shape of a football, 
in seismically active areas right. that the, 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 the life of this pollution was a thousand years. That means that any time in the next thousand years you could have a earthquake that could open up a fissure that could open up these polluted areas that could really damage the food chain of the North Pacific. That's what your government was doing. Unfortunately, we stopped that, but that was just the beginning of my getting educated about the whole problems of nuclear. And so from there, we were able to cap the amount of nuclear plants built in the United States to 150. And now they're trying to revive this whole nuclear deal. And that's where Sarkozy and American uh, nuclear interests are really trying. They won't get it. They won't, they won't be able to do it in this country, but they're trying very hard. Uh, evidently, the th- you want to say something? Oh, like no, that? I was just, I, we, I know we talked about getting back to the bailout, which is obviously oh, yeah. on everyone's mind today. And I, Senator Gravel, I know, had a, had a comment on that. What, what do you think about what's going on right now? Well, well first off, we're trapped. We're trapped. We're trapped? I, I have great respect for Barney Frank. I think he's the brightest one of the whole group there. And so you're, you're trapped. Our, our economy is run by the bankers. And so this is a plan by the bankers for the bankers. And what Frank has injected into this are some, some benefits that could accrue to the average American uh, and some benefits uh, that uh, could wind up with some equity. Here's the dilemma we have. The bankers have screwed up so badly that uh, if unless something is done, you could have a credit freeze that could trigger literally a, not a recession, a real serious depression mm-hmm. that on the order of what happened uh, back in the 1933, 1932. So we're playing with fire. And, and this is the hand you're dealt with. So a person can say, oh, this is terrible. The, you know, these are bad people. You're right. It's all bad. The people who did the damage, they're not going to lose a sou. They're all, all their millions are made. They're in their pockets. They're living in sunshiny climates. Now, what it is, is to stem the damage that could now be visited on the ordinary people of this country. And that's what this bailout is about. And the word is bailout. You're going to save the banks. Because what happens, if they go down, we all sort of go down. And so I have no uh, no sympathy at all, but we're trapped. And uh, and so those who and and I'd like to I hey I would love to do this. I would love to say, hey, you want capitalism? I'm going to give you capitalism. If if you fail, you fail. Problem is, the failure could be so painful to the process uh, that uh, it 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 could mean disaster to not only the United States but the world community. So now. I, I must tell you that when they say, oh, what we'll do is we'll get by this crisis and we'll reform later. Well, that's, that's like telling a drunk that, uh, oh, yeah, what we're going to do is we've got to give you a few drinks or, or uh, an attic or we're going to give you a little, a few, uh, a fix few hits here to get you by. And, but after that, we're going to help dry you out. Well, don't Mike, hold your breath on that one. Absolutely correct. I just want to interject that. Th- these kind of opportunities come along every 60 years. And if the people on the political left criticize the system, it's only when it collapses like that there's an opportunity to really remake the rules and to maybe nationalize health care, maybe even the oil companies. I mean, this is the chance to regulate, to put rules in there that will last so that these guys who have a very responsible job, like lawyers and doctors, they're the bankers. Well, just because you run the money, uh, you take care of money doesn't mean you're a king. 
and they're not to take that money irresponsibly and gamble it to enrich themselves, which is what they did. I, I agree with Mike, unfortunately, again, on, on this. I don't see fundamental changes to our system, and we'll never have a chance again for a long time to make them. And in four or five years from now, same thing could happen. So you feel encouraged that no matter what, uh, Senator Gravel and, and Joe, we're going to have a, a resolution to this, hopefully by the end of the weekend? Yeah, we've got to have something. A resolution, I wouldn't call it a resolution. You're going to have something that may stave off a worse disaster. But let me, let me give you a quote on something. Uh, my, I'm very fond of Kelso Economics. And, of course, uh, that flies in the face of the Wall Street types that really want to rip it off. But let me give you these words. The, the cost of capital can be paid for by the profits of capital. And that can be structured so that every American can benefit from that. Let me repeat it again, and I don't have the time. It would take hours for me to explain this. But the cost of capital can be paid for by the profits of capital that can be, and, and that can be arranged so every American can, can own capital. Not, not a handout, not a charity, uh, not the dole, but every American should be able to own a substantial portion of capital. And unless we develop a system that does that, we will always have the rich getting richer, the poor getting poorer, and the rich living in gated communities, and uh, never, never will they meet. Well, that's a, we're going to have to stop right there. That's a terrific place yeah, to stop, well, though. Not very encouraging, but no, yes, but it's a, a terrific, terrific place, place to, place to stop. Can, it is encouraging if we can empower the American people to become lawmakers and take control of the government in partnership with their elected officials. You can see a change, and you will. I recommend a book called Citizen Power, where I have all that outlined, along with the book that Joe and I have put together for you on the military-industrial complex. Well, and, and in the beginning of your book, you talk about the fact that people have the, the, the absolute right to control the government. And they do, but they, they don't have the procedures. They need, right. You need procedures to make laws, and they don't have that. Well, gentlemen, I want to thank the two of you, uh, uh, Senator Mike Gravel and Joe Loria. Loria. Uh, the name of the book is The Political Odyssey, The Rise of American Militarism and One Man's Fight to Stop It. Uh, with a forward by Daniel Ellsberg. We didn't get a chance to talk about him, but maybe in the future we can. A very courageous American. A patriotic, courageous American. As is Mike Ravel. Senator, thank you so much for being on the show. I want to I thank you, Joe, for coming on the show as thank well. Thank you for having us, sir. It was an honor to have the two of you. Thank you very Have much. a great weekend. Stay well. Bye-bye. All right, bye-bye. All the best, Mike. Thank bye-bye. you. He's a fascinating man. Oh, I think he's an incredible man. I I think that he is a profile in courage. Mm -hmm. I think he, you know, the funny thing is he was talking about Maverick, and in the book they talk about Mavericks. He mentions John McCain. Mm -hmm. Gravel is the Maverick. Well, he is, and the thing is he doesn't get credit for what he's done. I mean, what he did with that filibuster and really effectively ending the draft, and instead he was talked about during the Democratic debates as a nut job just because he was out there. But you know what? I don't think that makes him crazy. I think that makes him uh, somebody special, actually. Well, special to the point he risked his own life. I mean, he was yeah. indicted. Right. Oh. You know, the senators went well, after he him took risks. within hours. He took risks, he, but you can't. You don't get rewards without taking risks. He was a young man who took the risk, mm-hmm. who released confidential documents that uh-huh. were marked secret for your right. eyes, certain the eyes Pentagon only. The Pentagon papers we're talking the, about. Yeah, here. the Pentagon papers. He mm-hmm. cut the top of the papers off uh-huh. that said secret, wow. confidential. Wow. It's in the book. Mm-hmm. He goes with 4,000 sheets of paper 
to Congress and reads them in. He, he knew he was there for such a long period of time, it's in the book, that he had a colostomy. He had a, a catheterization so he wouldn't have to leave the floor. Really? Yeah. He wouldn't have to leave the floor to uh, go well, to the bathroom. That is a little crazy. Sorry, but, really? but, but it's... Not it's, only that, he uh, had the, 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 the house whip uh-huh. was also had a catheterization, so oh he wouldn't have God. to leave the floor. He would not relent on that. Good and, for him. And, uh, See, and, and, but but he was labeled as as being crazy when I think he did something so important in history, and unfortunately, history is not recognizing that. But you know what? History has a way of correcting things. So maybe ultimately, later in years, mm-hmm, it will. Maybe, maybe not in our Although life, he'll be lifetime. the nut who was in the Democratic debate and people laughed. But he said things that we were all thinking, and you even said I would have voted for him. I would have voted for him. I'm a Republican mm-hmm. listed, although I vote. In a liberal way, <laughs> I, I would have voted for the guy. I, I uh-huh. think because he represented to me well, he all the values thinking. I had in my acculturation process. Mm-hmm. So I think the guy was absolutely terrific. So uh, that was fun. That was a terrific uh, interview. We're out of time. We're getting there. We're listening to call. It is a pleasure and honor to well, see thank you. you. Thank you. Thank you for allowing me to join you. On I this just one. thought you'd enjoy it. I and, did. And again, uh, Mike Ravel, uh, Senator Mike Ravel, Joe Luria's book, A Political Odyssey. Get a hold of it. All major bookstores, you can find it. Uh, for sure, Amazon.com, because yes, they sir. sell everything. Right. Everything Big, in the world is available at Amazon.com. Big debate tonight. Big debate tonight. John gave in. <laughs> that was a joke. <laughs> I'm sorry. How, how ridiculous. Listen, more importantly, they better get this. As If, if Senator Gravel is saying, you know what, we better get this right. No kidding. We better get this no right. Kidding. I care more about that than any debate. I, yeah, I want to hear a well, debate. Well, they need to debate. They need but to speak. They we better need- get this down. Wanda, thanks a lot for being here today. Uh, we're going to see you all next week starting five days a week, starting Wednesday at 5 o'clock to 6 o'clock. And the 4 o'clock, 4.30 hour, we're going to be on uh, 880, that's 880 AM, The Biz. New show, new station, new frequency, new ideas. You guys have a great weekend. Stay well. Don't drive crazy. Goodbye. Back next week, Thursday and Friday, 4 to 6 p.m., for more of the good, the bad, the business. Oh, hey, I wet my jockeys here. This is the Rich Rothman Show on 1360 WKAT.